Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our introductory series. What I'd like to do, I'm Frank Ferris, uh, delighted to join all of you to do an introductory talk as we begin the content for our curriculum and our time together on what's the need for early palliative and hospice care. My goal is going to be to talk about modern illness and our experience to describe palliative and hospice care and to think about the value of early referral. My main message is that early referral to both palliative and hospice care actually delivers higher value and safety for our patients, their families, our healthcare systems, and everyone involved. And it's a very important step. So what I'd like to do is talk about the success of modern medicine. You and I think about all the things that people don't do as part of modern medicine and how many times have I heard people say, oh my goodness, they referred the patient late. And I think what we need to recognize is this is an evolving new story. What do I mean by that? Well, if we look at illness in the past and we move back into the 1800s, people typically died very quickly. 30% of death was related to dental problems. And if you were lucky, you lived into your 40s or your 50s. As we start to think about the movement into the 1900s, we see this paradigm continuing to evolve, and people typically died of infections. 30% of death was related to sepsis or more accidents, and people lived into their 60s if they were lucky. If we think about Medicare being set in 1966, why did we choose 65 as the cutoff? you're going to be lucky if you lived into your 70s. Totally transformed, hasn't it? So as I think about the introduction of antibiotics, penicillin is really the first one discovered in the 1920s. When did it become broadly disseminated? In the 40s. And so I really think of World War II as the marker. Let's think about that as 1945, the end of the war. How long ago was that? 72 years. So think about the modern illness experience as really having evolved over only 70 years. Staggering, isn't it? First steps, we get the ability to fight infections. We begin to develop cobalt therapy. In the 1950s, we get our first medications. By the time I'm graduating from medical school in 1981, we're actually starting to do open heart surgeries. We've developed uh, much better aseptic techniques. The revolution is underway. And today, we have medications, therapies, all sorts of technology. We can do things to patients they never imagined was possible. So as we think about this evolution from the 1940s to the 1980s, we start to see a new paradigm evolving, don't we? We start to see patients living with illness, and we start to see the beginning of people declining. And it was this concept that led a surgeon in the United Kingdom to say to Cecily Saunders, she'd been a social worker, she, sorry, she'd been a nurse and then a social worker, go back and study medicine and learn to care for the dying because now we can begin to see predictable decline. So what does it look like in 2017? 
Very different, 70 years later, isn't it? As we think about it, we sometimes cure, don't we? What are the potentially curable cancers, even though they present with advanced stage 3, stage 4 disease? What are the potentially curable cancers? Thyroid. Thyroid, absolutely. What else? Testicular. Testicular, brilliant. Basal cell cancer of the skin. Pardon me? And so we're really looking at very limited, aren't we, as well as childhood leukemias. What else? So Hodgkin's lymphoma particularly. And the new one, which is the remarkable because of the advanced therapies? Well, uh, maybe if we put it in that context, I was thinking specifically cancers. Myeloma? Uh, uh, not advanced stage presentation. Melanoma. Melanoma, that's the new one. Metastatic melanoma, potentially curable. Amazing, isn't it? What, what about, if we think about heart failure, the failing heart, what's the possibility in terms of cardiology of cure? Transplant. Only transplant, and we replace one disease with another, don't we? As we introduce the immunotherapy. So we really cure we actually belong, don't we? So what is the focus of all of cardiology? Symptom management, isn't it? It's really very sophisticated palliation. How do we keep the fluids in the right place, moving properly to minimize fatigue, weakness, shortness of breath, and secretions? How about pulmonology? What's the possibility of cure in pulmonology? COPD? Transplant. But is it really cure? It's not really cure, is it? Because we replace one with another. When we say cure, what does the patient want to hear? If I tell you I'm going to cure you, what did I just say? No more effects, no more treatment. We're done. Well, in terms of the illness, what does it mean? It's gone. It's gone, right? So again, we have to think about all of these as gone. Is it gone with pulmonology? Is it gone with cardiology? Or, in fact, it's great symptom management, the most sophisticated palliation. So, in fact, what we see is we most often control, and, in fact, you and I have done a fabulous job of controlling things. When I was graduating from medical school in 1981, a woman with breast cancer spread to bone could expect to live about a year. Today, 10 years. Huge changes, even with metastatic disease. And of course, we look at heart failure, we look at our sophisticated therapies, pulmonary disease, all these different organ failures, totally transformed. And HIV, you mentioned, when I was graduating, they were dying months. Today, it's a chronic illness, isn't it? Totally transformed. And we've, in fact, transformed life expectancy dramatically from something that was in the 50s, then the 60s. Now we are going to have thousands of centurions. Latest data from the CIA fact book based on the world statistics. And you can see there's huge variability. And, in fact, the United States still ranks as country number 50 in terms of our global health care practice. There are countries much better than us. So we start to see this new paradigm, don't we? With cancers, we see decline. We'll talk about this in much more detail in terms of prognosis. Once somebody starts to fail functionally, they have a prognosis of two to three months if their underlying disease is cancer. I'd like you to meet Kit. 
a 58-year-old healthcare executive. She'd been a executive director of a hospice. She'd been on the National Hospice Palliative Care Organization. She comes to work with us at the Epic Curriculum to help us launch it at the American Medical Association. She changes jobs and she needs to have a routine physical and a chest x-ray. And there on her chest x-ray is a very significant peripheral lung mass. She had no idea it was there. She was asymptomatic. She wants to have the best of treatment. She wants the best of comfort, and she wants to continue to work and be a part of her family. She goes on to have a subtotal pneumonectomy. Turns out she has adenocarcinoma. Metastatic workup shows no other evidence of cancer. So she has adenocarcinoma, primary unknown. Post-thoracotomy pain syndrome, already two or three days after her surgery, she's using two to 300 milligrams of oral morphine equivalents plus adjuvants to control her mixed nociceptive neuropathic pain story. As you think about the evolution, this is day one, right? In her story, she was well, and now she's got a number of issues causing suffering. Why does she come to the healthcare system? What does she need? So as we start to look at the model what do you think some of the issues are for Kit? What does she need? And she's a few days after her surgery. She wants pain control. Pain control. And of course, she's taking those opioids and all those other medications. And so what goes along with that? Constipation. Constipation and, particularly in women, the risk of nausea. You women have a much higher risk of nausea than us guys. So what else does she have as needs that potentially need to be addressed? Sleep. Sleep. Is she actually going to not be sleeping well? What else? Her concern about her job. Her concern about her job. She wants to continue to work. It's a brand new job. Oh my goodness, am I going to be able to realize my dream of seeing this curriculum launched? Absolutely. What else? role in the family? Oh, big change, yes. She's married. Her husband is with her, her two children. One lives uh, about 100 kilometers away and the other one's in India. She's got four grandchildren about 100 kilometers away. What else are concerns for her? Anxiety about the future. Anxiety about the future. And what do you think she's concerned about in terms of the future? Prognosis. prognosis. How long am I going to live? Well, she has adenocarcinoma, primary unknown. What is the prognosis of that illness with the best of therapy in North America? What is the prognosis? Prognosticians? Well, what does fairly grim mean? We need to get down to numbers here, don't we? So, six to 12 months? Yes, it's maybe a little bit better than that today. Absolutely. But she's going to ask those questions, isn't she? And do you think she's... Wondering whether she's going to die? Well, she was a hospice medical director. Of course, she wonders who's going to be her caregiver. Her husband actually slumps into profound depression, requiring both support and medications. He becomes very ineffective. What's she going to do? What else do you think she's concerned about? Finances. Money. She's the primary bringer of money into the family. Is she going to be able to work? And will she be able to buy health insurance, right? She's got a new diagnosis and moving to a new company. Wow, is she insurable. What else do you think she's concerned about? The effects 
Pardon? The effects of chemotherapy. And is she going to have treatment? Well, she's a fighter, so in fact she is. She's going to have both chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And is she going to have side effects? And will that make her sick? So as we think about this, we need to have a model, don't we? You and I, we've talked about disease management and prognosis. You and I do that all the time. And of course, we focus on that. And we focus on the physical management, pain, other symptoms, fluids, wounds, whatever the problem is for the patient. But are we actually beginning to address the psychological issues, anxiety, depression, distress? We know they're prevalent in 100% of our patients only to varying degrees. And of course, imagine yourself in this position. Would you be distressed? And your family be distressed? And worried? And afraid? And wondering? And what about social dynamics? The money? The roles and responsibilities? The insurance? The legal issues? How many of you have an advanced care plan written out with both the durable power of attorney for health care and directives? You know, a small number of people in the room. Gosh hospice and palliative care providers. We're going to change that. <laughs> and what about the issues of questions of why me? Where's my God? She's actually been very orthodox in her practice over life, following all the guidance from her religious practice. And now suddenly at this tender age, why, why me? Where's my God? What's going to happen in the transition? And what about the caregiving? Daughters a distance, other daughters in India, husbands in a slump. Who's going to look after me? Issues of am I going to die comes up for people very quickly. And of course, the issue of loss, grief for the patient and the anticipation on everybody's part that she's going to die and the reality that she will die in this story. And what about support for her family as they transition and roles and responsibilities change? It's a huge series of transitions, isn't it? It's, it's about everybody in this model. There they were as a family in wellness now thrown into chaos, Tuckman tells us as people transition in and out of groups and through diagnoses, they start over again, informing, storming, norming, and performing. And of course, there's another transition coming, isn't there? She will die, and the family's group starts all over again. How do we help them with that process? What we've learned is if we do a good job of this, they can transition relatively well but it takes real transition management, and that's part of what you and I get involved in doing. So as we look at the new success, now we have the organ failure curve, multiple crises, multiple hospitalizations, and in fact, Central Ohio, both of our systems, has very high readmission rates, and it's really a big issue. And look at the end of the curve. Do you see decline? No, you see sudden deaths, don't you? Very common in this population of patients. And the best of prognosticians would have said, gosh, this patient's going to live for another few months. And boom, they don't wake up tomorrow. And finally, the other curve. I heard the data the other day. If you make it to 85, you've got a 45% chance of having dementia. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> Just think about your future. So it's the... Booby prize, right? Who's looking forward to dementia and dependence for years? We'll talk more about that when we come to talk about prognosis. So Kit actually comes to the healthcare system not only to manage her disease, she's been on a path with an anticipated future, and Brody tells us in the face of the illness, she's thrown into uncertainty. 
How many of you enjoy uncertainty? How many of you like being out of control? Oh, it must be somebody in the room, right? No? <laughs> Nobody likes being out of control. And, and Brody tells us that people come to the healthcare system asking to help fix their stories. It takes me back to the question of what's health? And if we look at the World Health Organization definition, it's people having the capacity to live life the way they want to. So what's health care? What's health care? Strategies to help people be able to live their lives in the face of illness, yes? And live life the way they want to, as best possible. It's not only about managing the disease, but it's managing the experience so that you can continue to do the things you like to be able to do. That's Brody's story. It's not only about the disease. We need to help them with the whole story. Are they going to be able to continue their lives the way they want to? Will they still be the person they have been? Or are now they in a situation where they'll never be the person they were before? People ask us to help them fix their disease, to prevent and relieve suffering, and sometimes they say, don't do the treatments I don't want. How many of you want to be your own decision maker? So we're very much an autonomous society, aren't we? Recognizing that, in fact, in some parts of our society, it's family-based decision making. But again, the family wants to make choices and decisions to help them live the lives they want. So we need to negotiate, first of all, goals of life what is it this person wants to achieve? And then, based on that, think about medical care and goals for medical care. Where do people die? Well, it really hasn't changed, although 90% of us want to die at home. The reality is a quarter of us do. Most of us die in institutions, and a quarter of us die in long-term care facilities. Really hasn't changed that much at all. And even though families believe it's a responsibility to provide care in our very mobile society, and I see this happening all over the globe, as society becomes mobile, it's very difficult to provide care at home for some people. Some will rally. So come back to you. What do you want your illness experience to be? These are the four curves that have been published in JAMA in 2001. Have you ever heard of the game The Price is Right? There are three doors and you get to choose one and there's a prize on the back. Well, you get to choose one door, so you get to put up your hand once. Who would like to experience curve number one as your primary diagnosis? Must be somebody who would enjoy organ failure and multiple admissions. Here we have you coming through his emergency room and we're coming into your intensive care unit. Who's looking forward to door number one? Nobody in the room. Interesting. And how about door number two, the dementia story? Slow loss of both mental and physical function, increasing dependence. It's going on for years. Oh, my goodness. Your family is so fatigued. We've had to give them respite admissions. Oh, my goodness. Long-term care facility. Who's looking forward to door number two? <laughs> oh, must be somebody in the room who's looking forward to that. No? And guess what? 25% of us die with four major diagnoses. 25% of us with dementia is one of them. It's exciting, isn't it? How about cancer? You know, the story, first-line therapy, second-line therapy, third-line therapy. Oh, my goodness, we can see you're declining. Ah, but we're at the James, and we have a phase one clinical trial for you. <laughs> Who would like door number three? 
Ah, we've got one hand up, two hands up, three, four hands up in the room. How about door number four? Living your life to the fullest. Ooh, myocardial infarction. Admitted, died. Oh, come on, dreamers. <laughs> What's the reality? How many people actually die sudden death in our society today? Less than 10%. The bottom line is you're going to get to experience one of these others. Or are you going to make choices and manage it differently? What do you think Kit wants? She actually wants the best of therapy, but she's also very realistic. And where would you like to receive care as you come towards the end of your life? You've got a few weeks left. Who would like care in one of the acute care facilities here in Columbus? We work in three lovely hospitals, right? Who'd like to be in one of those healthcare systems? Nobody in acute care. Isn't that interesting? Who'd like to be in one of our lovely long-term care facilities, all of which are for profit in Columbus? Yeah, maybe. I didn't say the hospice unit. I just one of the long-term care facilities. I'm being very clear about that. Who'd like to be at home? And who would like to be at home even if you're a burden to your family? And my hand is still up. Yeah. Again, have you got the resources to be able to support that? Is your family going to be able to support you? Very important. And of course, there's the issue of our acute unit here, Kobacher House, but is very much an acute hospital. It's not for long stay. So, what's palliative care? I like to think of it as very simply preventing and relieving suffering, promoting quality of life and dying for patients and their families. And my focus is actually the family, because if we do a terrific job for families, it means we have to have done a terrific job for the patient. They're all watching their future. They're all going to live on with a memory. They need to become our new focus. Any diagnosis, anytime there's a need. So we see this evolution of diagrams from the historical perspective of, of focusing on the management of the infection, the cancer, the surgery, and completely focused. And that was so important in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. We start to think about in the 80s, oh my goodness, maybe we should have end-of-life care. And we develop a special benefit in America to provide that called hospice care. But today, isn't the model one of, wouldn't you like to have this when you have your diagnosis? Didn't Kit need it day one? Shouldn't we integrate this? We've got lots of reasons to believe there's value in early referral. And will it actually transform people's lives? That's the WHO, or World Health Organization, definition. Now, how do we integrate that in our healthcare systems? And as we think about hospice care, we need to think about it as this specialized benefit. It's really an insurance. It's unique to North America. It's unique to the United States. And we have the best funded model for really providing enhanced palliative care. No other place in the world has the funding model we have to provide this for patients with a prognosis of less than six months if the illness runs its normal course. It's existed since 1982. It's quite extraordinary. It's been adopted by Medicaid and commercial insurers. It's a fabulous model. It incorporates all these domains of care and recognizing that that's our goal is to help people with all of these. It's about a team, isn't it? And you can't actually do palliative care or hospice care without a full team because none of us have the training in all the areas or the time. And there's an issue of is there real value? So just remind you what value is as we think about our real story here. 
Value is quality, the best possible quality, over cost. So can we be cost effective, even minimize cost as we increase the quality? And can we think about safety as making sure we don't do things that are harmful, but also minimize the risk of harm by not doing therapies with no benefit? It's even in Kit's story, isn't it? Is she going to get the best care, but is she going to get it in the setting she wants? Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum.